The text that I'll be preaching from this morning is from the book of Judges. It's found in chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, and I'll read through chapter 3, verse 2. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hand of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, and the Lord, uh, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet, that they, yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua had uh, left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to no war, at least those who had not formally known it. The word of the Lord. God. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, when you hear the phrase, here comes the judge, what comes to mind? If you, yeah, I thought I was going to hear that. He's got a white beard like me. You've got to be old if you're going to say that. But uh, I think for, for the rest of us, what comes to mind is some person in a long black robe. If uh, we're watching the BBC, maybe we see someone with a funny wig. But uh, I think what comes to mind is just this notion of somebody with this long black robe sitting behind a big desk, high and lifted up, listening to arguments arguments presented by the prosecution and the defense, and then the judge rendering judgment, pronouncing this is uh, the sentence. And that's, I think, uh, understandable because we live in the United States in, in the 21st century. Um, what I think is lost uh, on us is that this is not the way things always were. 
Uh, was it always the case that things worked this way? Um, what we see in the book of Judges is something that I know as a young Christian puzzled me. I, I thought, where is the long black robe? Where is the big desk? You know, where are the arguments from the prosecution and the defense? It didn't make any sense to me. Uh, one of the problems that I think we deal with as you know, people in the contemporary world, people who are here at this point in history, is uh, we see something that was unusual uh, in the course of human history, something that's a fairly recent development, and that's the division of powers. Uh, once upon a time, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government were all resident in a single person, the king. It's because we didn't want kings that we divided the powers. But uh, the reason why we refer to a law court as a law court is because uh, we still have the language handed down to us of the court, the court of the king. So the king not only would hear uh, arguments, but actually would actually uh, execute justice and judgment uh, directly himself. And in Israel, this is one of the things that you need to keep in mind. Uh, because when we're talking about the book of Judges, the judge, really, the, the, the highest authority is God himself. God is judge. And then there are the instruments of his judgment. And we see those instruments uh, presented to us here. One of those instruments is the nations. God uses the nations that surround Israel to discipline Israel. Uh, they are the means of his just judgment. Uh, and uh, they're in, used by God to punish his people because they uh, forsake him and uh, break covenant. And uh, of course, this is intended to bring about repentance and uh, lead to the restoration of the people of God and see them return to him. But I think it's fascinating to see how the whole process is described. For one, of the, for one thing, we're told here uh, in verse 14 of this passage uh, that when the Lord is, is, is angry and his anger is hot against Israel, he delivers them into the hands of plunderers who despoil them, and he sells them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they can no longer stand before their enemies. That language that is drawn from the market of selling the people of God into the hands of the enemy, I think is worth keeping in mind as we think about uh, the language of redemption. We use the term redeem, uh, and I think we have a sense of what it implies. It's kind of intu intuitive, but it, uh, what, it, what I think it reveals to us is that uh, there are points uh, that uh, we see in the scriptures in which God sells his people into the hands of, of, of uh, their enemies because of their disobedience, and then he redeems them and buys them back uh, at great cost, of course. But we also see that uh, in this uh, passage... Uh, the role that the judges play are the, uh, is the role of the execution of God's judgment against God's enemies. So on one hand, God uses the enemies of the people of God to judge his own people, and he uses his judges to judge the judges, <laughs> or the means of his judgment, to deliver, to deliver his people from their hands. And what we have there is something that looks a lot, whole lot more like Dirty Harry than anything we see in night court. You know, when we think about, you remember night court, don't you? You know. Yeah, you know, had this kind of youthful judge who's kind of working his way up the ladder and has to 
preside over the night court. I remember I had years ago an experience where I was uh, called for jury duty in the city of Boston. There was some guy that had watched too much night court, I think. And he introduced himself as Judge Bob. I said, you know, to myself, you know, Bob, I don't really want to be here. I said this to myself, so don't try to be my friend, for one thing. Uh, and don't try to make this all sound, you know, sort of warm and fuzzy and we're just all in this together and we're friends. No. Now, if I had my way, I'd be back home right now, and the only reason I'm not walking out of this room is the guy's over there with the guns. So, you know, let's not pretend. Uh, sometimes, when it comes to the execution of justice and the people who are instruments of justice, and in my case at that point, uh, a potential jury, uh, a member of a potential jury, uh, we don't really want to be there, but we are there anyway because uh, someone in authority has said, you need to be here. And if you're not here, well, you're going to pay. Yeah, well, that's the way the world works. And that's what we see here. The judges redeem the people of God at different points in, this, uh, in the course of the book of Judges. Now, what this also reveals is that God is sovereign. Now, when you use the term sovereignty and you think about God in light of that term or think about that term in light of the authority of God, I think there's a, there's a sense in which uh, there's a recoiling that many of us feel uh, kind of inwardly, kind of almost involuntarily when uh, the statement God is sovereign is made. Now, some of us who know God take great comfort in the statement God is sovereign because that means that the Lord has the authority and the power to deliver us and look after us. But I think for, for most folks, that's not the initial sort of response. I think initially most people resent the authority and sovereignty of God. And it's because they kind of think of it in a sort of zero-sum formula. You know how the zero-sum formula works. It's kind of like pizza. The more slices you get, the fewer there are for me. <laughs> and so this idea that, that God, God's will prevails means that God gets like 95% of the pizza and I'm stuck with just 5%. You know, that's kind of the way it feels to us. It's kind of like taxes. You know, the more the government taxes us, you know, of course it does so in our interest, but the less there is for you and me. What's that Tax Freedom Day? I think it's like May 15th or something like that. The, 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 the idea is that it takes you that long to actually get to the money that you get to keep. <laughs> and, well, anyway. But that's the zero-sum way of thinking. That's not the proper way to consider the way God's sovereignty works in our lives. It's not as though the more will God exercises, the less will we have to exercise. That particular approach is due to, I think, some uh, erroneous thinking and uh, I think the wrong metaphor that, uh, that kind of governs the way we look at this whole matter. So when I think people think about God's authority and sovereignty, they, the, the sort of the metaphor that's implicit, that is sort of assumed, is a mechanical one. That we live in a mechanical cosmos and there's some, I don't know, starship up in the, in the heavens where God is like, you know, like on a starship uh, enterprise, pushing buttons and pulling levers and making things happen in the world. It's all kind of mechanistic. So, you know, God wants something, he pulls a lever, and then there's the machinery that, uh, you know, sort of is set in motion and then we kind of do things against our will. That's the way we more or less think about it. But that, I want you to, to consider or, or sort of see is a, a modern way of thinking about things. And even though the way I expressed it may sound a little bit, I think, lighthearted, I think intuitively that's where a lot of modern people are because we tend to think mechanistically. But in the scriptures, 
we have a whole different way of thinking about things presented to us. And the, the way that uh, it, we see presented to us in Scripture, and I think it's appropriate for us to think about this, looks a lot more like Downton Abbey. Are you familiar with Downton Abbey? How many people have watched Downton Abbey? Okay, maybe a third of the room. So I've not watched it either. So I've just been told about it by a lot of women who like to watch the BBC. Anyway, I noticed there were some guys who raised hands too, but, but it, it, struck, it strikes me as a show that really appeals to a lot of women. But, but anyway, the way it works, Downton Abbey is this, uh, this uh, arist- sort of uh, home for, for a family that's part of the aristocracy, right? And they live upstairs. And then the servants live downstairs, right? Upstairs, downstairs. Now, certain servants get to go upstairs. Those are sort of the, I guess, uh, servants who have more authority than the rest. It kind of reminds me of, of the breakers uh, in uh, Rhode Island, in, in Newport. Now, here in the south, uh, I believe there's a place called Biltmore, where the Vanderbilts uh, built the largest home in the United States. You know, it could, like house a village, that kind of thing. Well, uh, their summer residence was up north. I don't know if you realize that. It was the Breakers. And so their summer residence is, like, enormous as well. But, you know, it's the little place up there in Newport, Rhode Island. And it's in a part of town where it's just nothing but mansions. You can go to that part of town, and it's basically the war of the mansions. You know, one one family builds one mansion, and the next family builds an even bigger mansion. But the kind of the crown jewel in Newport, Rhode Island is the Breakers. And what's really fascinating about it is it's basically two houses that are, that are occupying the same space. One of the things that you can observe if you have an eye for it is all the walls are very thick, very thick. You know why? Those were the hallways for the servants. The servants were never supposed to be seen. There were only two servants who were, who were permitted to be seen. That was the liveryman and the, the butler. But there was a staff of like 60 people in the house. But they actually literally lived in the walls. And the children were never supposed to see them because, well, you don't want your daughters to take romantic interest in servants, right? So the entire house was actually built for the daughters, the stairway, all that stuff. It was just this, like, dream world for a teenage girl. But it was also kind of creepy because there were lots of <laughs> places where the servants, get, you know, were, were looking through the holes in the wall so that they could get signals from different people to do certain stuff and, to, and know whether or not what, you know, needed to be done had been done. And here's, a, here's an odd thing. Every closet that the kids had in the family had a false back. The, the closets themselves were very small because they only needed to have one change of clothes in them. So why is that? Because the back opened up and a servant would put what the child was supposed to wear for the next part of the day. They had to like change clothes like four times a day for different things. It's crazy. But anyway, that's the way it worked. But this is what you have when we think about you know, these homes for the aristocracy, but also it's a way for us to think about the way the world is made. There is an upstairs that is inaccessible to us who are down here below. And there is a heavenly host that serve the Lord or in his presence and execute his will. And then below, we are the servants who reflect the divine image and execute God's will in this place. And we have creatures that we oversee in the heavenly hierarchy. We are images of God. And the notion that's conveyed when we hear that term image is we represent God in this world. 
This is one of the ways that basically I think we kind of lose sight of, the, of, of the, what was supposed to be the definitive proof of God's existence. The definitive proof of God's existence was supposed to be you and me. In other words, you look at me or I look at you, we see the image of God. Recall when Christ is asked, show us the Father, and the response of the Lord in John's Gospel is, have I been around you this long and you still don't get it? When you see me, you see the Father. In other words, when God's will is perfectly performed, we see God. That's what we were supposed to be. So when an atheist says, show me God, you can just respond, well, you were supposed to be the proof. Great way to shut him up. <laughs> anyway, uh, but here we have this situation where, you know, the, we have this upstairs and we have this downstairs. The, the world that we live in was created by God. He is its authority because he is its author. An author always has authority over his works. And uh, we have this unseen upstairs and then there's the downstairs. And throughout Scripture, we have those moments where God says, don't make me come down there. And then he comes down to check out what's going on. Sort of like when you're a kid and you're messing with your brother in the basement and he's screaming for mercy and your father says down the stairs, don't make me come down there. That's sort of the message that we get, don't make me come down there. Because if I come down there, I'm going to have to do some things that you're not going to be too happy about. Think about Babel. Don't make me come down there. Let's see what these people are up to. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> All right, everybody out of the pool. It's over. You got Sodom and Gomorrah. Are they really up to, oh, they are. Okay, bring down the, the brimstone. It's time to wipe this whole thing out. That's the way we should think about God and his governance of the world. Now, when we think about the level that we find ourselves on, the world that we dwell in, there are ways in which God's will is executed, it's enforced. First of all, there's the moral will of God that we find expressed through the commandments. And we can number them. Uh, we can say there are two, we can say there are 10, we can say there are 613. The rabbis tell us that's the number of commandments we have in the, in, you know, the Pentateuch, 613. Summer, summed up you know, into two basic uh, commandments, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Then we have the Ten Commandments, which lay them out in more, you know, more spe uh, specificity, and then we have the 613. Uh, but that is where we see... Uh, sort of the internal response of the children of God willingly uh, submitting to those commands and, and executing those commands and demonstrating that they are children because they do what they're told, like good children uh, should uh, do in any household, uh, do what they're told. But that's, that doesn't mean that uh, the head of house doesn't get his way when there are rebellious servants. When there are rebellious servants, they're treated like what? Slaves. Slaves to sin. And they're compelled to do what the head of house says should be done, whether they want to or not. So you can either be treated as a child or as a slave that must be beaten and made to do what you should do, whether you want to do it or not. Now, the way this is, is, is executed is through... Uh, the course of human history. Have you, ever, have you ever noticed in your own life that sometimes you say things and things don't happen? That never happens for God. 
<laughs> for, for, for God, saying and being are the same thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What that means is that there's no space between God's Word and what happens. So, when God argues, history happens. Think about it that way. When God argues, history happens. We make our arguments, we behave in certain ways, and then God says, okay, how about this? And then things happen, judgments happen. And whether we like it or not, no matter what we do, we will serve the interests of God and further glorify God either in one way or another, either because we receive his mercy and uh, demonstrate uh, our love for him through our obedience, or, uh, you know, we'll just glorify God whether we want to or not by being his instruments uh, in different ways. But here's another thing to think about. A lot of folks would like, just like God to leave them alone. You ever thought about that? Just leave me alone. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. When God gives you over to your lusts, it's a form of judgment. The fact that God is messing with your life <laughs> is an indication that God has an interest in you and wants to work in your life and work all things together for your good. So you don't want God to leave you alone, even when God messing with your stuff is unwelcome. So the, the world is governed uh, at, like a household is governed, and the head of house gets his way. Now, this is not the way we think about things in the world today. We have different ways of thinking about uh, the course of human history, and there really are rival ways of thinking about human history, and I'd like to talk about that for a little bit. There's a, hit, there's a story that we tell ourselves, the story of human history. We're, we're told, as we tell the story to ourselves, it's the story of human progress. And uh, we, it has <clears throat> at least two dimensions. Uh, one of those dimensions is the sort of the progress of human rights. And that progress of, uh, with regard to human rights is uh, the progress of human sovereignty in political affairs, the sovereign, uh, sovereignty of individuals. And there are a number of, I think, uh, salutary benefits to this. I'm not saying that this is an altogether bad thing. But I think that the way of putting it the way that, that, I, that I, or in other words, the way I did put it, is intended to bring something to your sort of uh, your minds that perhaps you didn't think about before. And that is sovereignty is at issue here. Human sovereignty and how we think about human sovereignty in relationship to God's sovereignty. The other story is the progress of science, or another dimension of, the, of this uh, story uh, when it comes to human sovereignty is expressed through science. Science is a means by which we exercise our sovereignty over the physical world. <clears throat> so the story that we're told in public schools or in secular colleges is the story of human progress, the growth uh, and, uh, and development of uh, our sovereignty in political and uh, matters and in the world uh, that we find ourselves, the natural world. This is not what we see in the book of Judges. <laughs> what we see in the book of Judges is not a straight line, not some kind of rising sort of uh, a story of a human ascent uh, into ever greater degrees of human sovereignty. But what we see instead is a kind of cycle 
Uh, and in that cycle, uh, we see at least three things that follow each other. Uh, the first is uh, rebellion or sin. And then we see God's judgment. And then we see repentance. And then we see redemption. That's the cycle. It's very much like a washing machine. It's kind of like chong, chong, chong. And you kind of end up at the same place that you began in the course of the cycle. Uh, and the thing that we see in the book of Judges is that, is that uh, it's very difficult uh, for one generation to pass on its lessons, lessons learned to the next. More or less, they just keep returning to the sort of unfortunate starting place that each generation seems to arrive at, and is, that is they're worse than their fathers. Things just continue sort of in this sort of downward cycle. Things get worse and worse, a vicious cycle, uh, until finally you find yourself at the end of the book of Judges with all sorts of untoward behavior. But in the midst of all this, we see that God is pursuing a purpose, and it's a fascinating one to consider. We see this presented to us here in verse 2 of chapter 3. We're told there that this whole sort of cycle, this kind of history that doesn't seem to be making any progress, is intended to teach them something that their fathers had known but they needed to, be, needed to learn, and that was this. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war. One of the things I think uh, is uh, lost upon us as, as, as believers is the fact that we're conscripted into a, a, a war uh, by uh, not any sort of... Uh, kind of volunteer approach to the conflict, but just simply we're drafted in. <laughs> we just find ourselves in this conflict, and we need to uh, reconcile ourselves to that fact. There is a war that's being waged in heavenly places, but also in our own lives. We're called as Christians to wage war against that part of ourselves that wages war against God. The flesh, the propensity that exists within each one of us to sin. That is something that needs to be subdued and brought into submission to God. You see that early on in Scripture, we're told that uh, as the Lord is addressing Cain, that sin crouches by the door, but you must subdue it. You must exercise mastery over it. And this is a, is, a, is a process that's got a violent character. In other words, what we are up against is the inner traitor. There's a part of us that betrays our best interests. Not, not just simply uh, defies God, although that's the case, but betrays our own best interests. Because there is no life outside of God. We were made to pursue his glory and to embody it. And when we fail to do so, when we sin, when we fall short of the glory of God, um, our own best interests are betrayed. So we need to wage war against that part of ourselves and be merciless with that part of ourselves. Furthermore, there's principalities and powers that we struggle against. 
there's the world, which is a system of lies that uh, is sort of a psyops, psychological operation, psychological warfare that's being conducted all the time that we have to be uh, prepared to resist. We have to remind ourselves of the truth constantly because, well, we're prone to believe lies. That's why, you know, a time like this is so important to, to reorient ourselves toward the truth. So we're in a war. So we have rival histories, a history in which, you know, we see this story of human progress, uh, and then we have this, this history that we have presented to us in the book of Judges. Now, there is an end to history, and I'd like to talk about rival eschatologies, and that'll be my last point. A few years back, there was a book that was published entitled The End of History by a guy named Francis Fukuyama. I don't know if you remember that. It came out in 1992, I think it was. And basically, he said, uh, we have arrived at the end of, his, of history. We've arrived at the promised land, and the promised land is liberal democracy. Happy day. <laughs> you know? So this is, this is it. There's nowhere else to go. That was the, what was the implication. In other words, the story of human progress has arrived at a kind of secular city. Secular city, that's a book that was written by actually a professor of mine, uh, Harvey Cox at Harvard Divinity School. Sold millions, made him a millionaire. It's wrong. <laughs> it was just completely wrong. But anyway, the reason why it sold so many copies is because people want that to be the case. People want certain things to be true. People want to believe lies. They want to believe that we can save ourselves. They want to believe that we can be like God. And that's and not like God in the sense of an image of God, but actually God. Think about the temptation in the garden. What we see in that temptation is that there are doubts that the accuser, Satan, the accuser raises uh, or uh, promotes in the minds of Adam and Eve, trying to bring God's character into question. That's the nature of the temptation. And what Satan uh, states uh, quite directly is that you can't trust God because he's jealous. He's afraid that you will challenge his authority by being a God yourself. That's the only reason that you're not supposed to eat from this particular tree. And in the course of human history, we keep seeing that uh, come up again and again. And in our time, uh, we see something known as transhumanism, which is actually as old as the hills, as old as uh, the story we see recorded for us in the Garden of Eden. But of course, it's brand new and fresh uh, because we live in a time where we are um, so full of ourselves, we, we, we really do think that death is an engineering problem. That if we just uh, are able to uh, unlock the secrets of the human genome, uh, download our minds onto computers, and I'm not making this stuff up. You know, if you want to look into it for yourself, uh, Google a guy named Ray Kurzweil. Uh, he's one of the lead futurists at Google. There's a lot of money being thrown at this project uh, throughout Silicon Valley and other parts of the world. But basically, the, the goal of the singularity, all that stuff, is to uh, see knowledge increase to such a degree that we are able to uh, self-divinize. Apotheosis is the technical term. Make ourselves into gods. And if you ask certain people in Silicon Valley, I've got friends in that world, um, they will actually tell you, we are building God. 
That's where it is. That's where it stands right now. That's what we're up against. That's the nature of the project. There is a, another uh, account for how the world ends, and that other account is uh, reflected in the resurrection of our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, who conquers death for us. And because he conquers death for us, we can enjoy eternal life if we are found in him. Now, there's a, there's a preposition that comes up a lot in the Bible. It's the preposition in Greek, uh, epsilon nu. It's pronounced n. It sounds a lot like the English in, which is great because they, are actually mean, they may actually mean the same thing. <laughs> so one of the things that we see in the modern evangelical movement is a strong uh, emphasis on uh, asking Christ to come into your heart. You know, praying the sinner's prayer, welcoming Christ into your heart or our hearts. And that's fine. That's great. That's biblical. But uh, there's another way of thinking about this that is much more, uh, I guess, uh, prevalent. That's the best word for it in the New Testament. And that's being found in Christ. So you want to be found in Christ because that's where the good things are. What am I getting at? Well, years ago, back in the 70s, when I was a kid, I'd watch a lot of football on television, and I'd, I'd see this guy with a rainbow wig. You, you remember the, the rainbow wig guy? He was always in the end, end zone, and he always had this John 3.16 sign, right? And every time there was a field goal or an extra point, you know, he would stand up with his rainbow wig and hold up John 3.16. And I, and I, I learned uh, what John 3.16 was through the rainbow wig guy. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good verse. It's a good verse, but the but I think the, the trouble is that we don't know John 3, 17 or 18. So let me take you to uh, this passage. It's an important one uh, in ways that even John 3, 16 guy, I think, didn't uh, quite, uh, I, I think, uh, get. So uh, let's take a look at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a marvelous promise. Marvelous promise. Then, the verse that follows elaborates, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Great. It's the 18th verse that we need to hear. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, those who are not in Christ are under condemnation, the condemnation of and the curse of death. That's already the case. So what you want is to find a way into Christ, because if you find a way into Christ, then you enjoy what he deserves. Think about it this way. There's a, there's a term that uh, is used that we don't hear much anymore, but we see it in the history of Western civilization and other parts of the world, uh, at least as it's practiced. The term itself probably wasn't used uh, in many, many settings, but it gets at my point, and the term is primogenitor. Have you ever heard the term primogenitor? How many hands? Oh, there are a few, great, great. Now, primogenitor uh, essentially means the oldest son gets the entire estate the entire estate. Now, we're told in Scripture that Abraham re 
received the promise that he was the heir of the world. But Abraham died. So somebody in his line was the heir of the world. Who do you suppose that someone is? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the heir of the world, which means he inherits the whole thing. There's not going to be a day where, you know, we, we sit down and, and get back to my pizza illustration where we say, okay, Jesus gets uh, half the pizza and then we split the other part. No, he gets the whole pizza. The entire pizza belongs to Christ. So how do we get anything at all? Well, we're told in Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 17, we are joint heirs with Christ if we are in him. So in, in, in Italian families, so my wife is Italian, okay? And so I, I actually kind of saw this in, in action. And you see it in a lot of uh, films where you have Ita Italian families. And the oldest son, is, he gets a lot of special treatment. I don't know if you've ever thought about why. Well, because in the old country, everyone knew he got it all. So you needed to be on good terms <laughs> with the oldest son because if you were going to get anything at all, it's because he favored you. So when we see, you know, that the judgment scenes that are presented to us in Scripture and we hear words like, enter into the joy of your master, what does that mean? You enter into the joy of your master. In other words, you just don't enjoy yourself on your own. Go in your own way. It's only those who find themselves in Christ who will enjoy the blessings of eternal life, glorification, all of that. In other words, it's, it's uh, inseparable. You can't separate the blessings of eternal life from being in the Son. It's by uh, your location in the Son that you enjoy eternal life. And he is the judge who redeems us See that, how that ties into this part of the scripture that I read uh, earlier from Judges uh, 2 and 3. So my, my encouragement to you this, this uh, day is to make certain that you are in the sun because that's where you want to be because anyone who is outside of the sun is under condemnation. There is no eternal life outside of Christ because Christ has secured our salvation by doing what we couldn't do for ourselves. We're, we're Protestants. We believe in salvation by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. Remember that, in Christ alone. We are actually saved by works. It's just, they're just not our works. Christ's works save us. Christ fulfilled the law. Christ deserved to be raised from the dead. We don't deserve to be raised from the dead. Christ did. And if we are in him, if we're united to him, if we are his body, we get what we don't deserve because he got what he didn't deserve. Do you see how it works? Marvelous stuff. That's what we call gospel. <laughs> That's gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we be found in him on that day so that we can enjoy all the blessings that he deserves even though we don't. In Christ's name, amen.